beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make sense. Hi everyone. I was so happy when Johan agreed to talk to us at Meet Me in the Field, with what seemed to be enthusiasm and without any hesitation. I've never met Johan before the day of our recording, but I feel as if I did, because I've been following his work on Facebook for a while already, and always feel a sense of excitement when I see what they are up to. Johan manages a company called Makassar Pottery. The website address is www.makassarpottery.com. Makassar is spelled M-A-C-A-S-S-A-R. Please pop in there. I saw some lovely stuff. <sighs> if I were a rich man. I was excited about recording this podcast because I know that Johan is doing excellent work in the Makassar community and I wanted to hear more about it. I apologize for the wind which blew badly at some stages during the chat and you can unfortunately hear it. The podcast is supported by the first layer, the 12-step workbook on working through the 12 steps in any addiction in 21 sessions. There's also a 24-day step coaching and counseling program available based on the first layer. For more information in this regard, go to www.freddy.org.za and click through from the notices at the right of the homepage. This is your Hans story. Sit back and enjoy. Where are we? Afternoon, morning, morning, I suppose. Morning, Johan. How are you doing? Uh, great, thanks. Um, welcome, welcome to Marvelous Macassar. <laughs> Marvelous Macassar. Well, you welcome to meet me in the field. We are sitting, I think this is possibly the most interesting place that I've ever done a recording for Meet Me in the Field. Explain to us where we are. We are sitting at the, the burial place of one of South Africa's uh, lesser known historical heroes. Um, lesser known but not less important than anybody else. Um, Sheikh Yusuf is known as the Mandela of his time. He was banished here from Indonesia. Um, thrice banished actually uh, because of the colonial fears around his influence on slaves inciting rebellion against the, the colonizing process. Um, he's considered also the, the father of Islam in South Africa um, but when he came here he uh, didn't come as a kind of a religious zealot. He founded a, a free community where all the freed slaves and runaways and misfits where everybody was welcome uh, in this community that he founded after being banished three times uh, um, and settled here on the other side of the Easter River which means completely cut off from Cape Town uh, the Cape Town of those days and uh, we are looking at this mausoleum, a white building with turrets um, typical um, Islamic style yeah, very typical, eh? yes, um, his remains have been repatriated but this is still a, a holy place and people make pilgrimages here Okay, oh wonderful. A part of the history that I have frankly never heard of. <laughs> As in, when you told me about it earlier, I was, what? I, I, why don't we know this stuff? I mean, this is how many kilometers from where I live, and it's so close, but I, I just don't know it. Um, and it, it definitely brings the, the thought to me, I need to get out more. <laughs> yes, <I> do. <laughs> sit, sit, sitting in my office and just doing what I do is not going to bring this type of knowledge and exposure. Yeah. Now, Johan, thank you so much for talking to me, for meeting me in the field. You draw my interest, or I became interested in what you do through our well, mutual acquaintance, my friend, your acquaintance, I suppose, James, from Utandu. And 
he told me about this guy who runs this pottery place in Makassar. And I looked you up on Facebook and I found Makassar Pottery. And then I started looking at what you do. How did it happen that you run, what, own, run? Well, um, ownership is a contentious issue in South Africa, I think. <laughs> and I think we all need to learn to enjoy things without owning it. Okay. Um, like so at the, at the moment, I'm a shareholder in the company. It's uh, majority um, em employee owned, um, but I run it. Oh, cool! And hopefully, I won't run it forever. <laughs> I'll get somebody <laughs> else to do that hard work so that I can move on to you know some other things that I love. Okay, so you are a shareholder of a company called Makasa Pottery. Yes, and is that a non-government organization NGO? No. Um, there's, there's so many streams of thinking that sort of converge around Makassar Pottery. So the, the business wears many hats. Um, it's deliberately not a non-profit company um, because I believe if we're going to uh, try and shift the, the spatial and the social dynamics in South Africa, we need to provide avenues for people to, uh, to grow, but to own the process that they're growing. Um, so just the handout kind of help with a non-profit. I'm not discounting the work of non-profits, but I do think there's definitely a place where we need to make money. Cool. And the people that we make money with need to share in the profits in a very direct way. They need to own the process um, because the ability to be productive is a core part of dignity. Yeah. So in, in the bigger picture of South Africa and, and apartheid and all of that, if, if we're going to restore dignity to marginalized communities, it needs to be an economic process and it needs to be locally owned and eventually locally driven. Awesome. Very, very true. So, how many people are involved, employed at Makassar Pottery? We are uh, kind of in a transition phase. Um, there's, there's been amazing new partners and opportunities that have come on board over the last uh, about eight months. Good. Uh, I won't tell you too much right now, but hopefully you'll see us in, on shelves where you've never seen us before. Awesome. Very soon. Um, but so at the moment we have about six employees. There's about 20 people in free programs. Uh, but with this growth that's ahead, we'll be able to push up our employment significantly um, and enlarge our outreach programs. Okay. So we do drumming. Um, with young people in the community and we have a, a community pottery class and those really function not strictly as outreach opportunities but I see them as job readiness processes. Um, in particular we want to upskill and employ youth who have not finished school and for a young person that has fallen out of school prematurely has never held a steady job the jump from where they are to employment is a bit big. Yeah which means we need to create graded opportunities. It's awesome. not an outreach of come and play in our drumming group and then go home and feel good about yourself. Um, the young people in the group need to understand uh, how, how do I go from where I am to kind of the next step. If I learn this, I can play in the group when they receive tourists and be paid X amount for that. Uh, maybe that happens once or twice a month. The next level is a slightly higher engagement and higher and higher until such a person feels they're ready to apply for full-time employment. Awesome. Now, Jan, are you Capetonian? 
I am Praetorian. Oh, so some, okay. sometimes the harder I try to run away from the accent <laughs> and uh, a bunch of other things, and every now and again I meet somebody that says, you are the most Praetorian-like person I've ever met. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I recently had a holiday with an old, old school friend of mine, and she came up to me one night, and she said to me, where did you get Where do you mean where did, I, where did I put the food? Not the, not the course, the cars. The cheese, the cars. <laughs> so, so she had that whole thing all down to a cheese. I, 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 I didn't realize how bad it could be. Um, so you grew up in the old Afrikaans system because we, yes. we, we're very much the same age. We're about five years apart. And yeah, I think <laughs> in some ways my family uh, represents the typical journey of Afrikanerdom to some extent. Uh, my grandfather was in the military, fought in the uh, Second World War. Oh, wow. Uh, my father's generation was the generation that moved from rural to urban areas for the first time. Uh, my brothers and I are the first in our family to actually attend university and graduate and then grew up in a fairly, obviously very white, but fairly right-wing kind of environment, very conservative politically. Okay. And religiously? Uh, by this time I'm a, quite a mix <laughs> of Christian denominations. Grew up Dutch Reformed, but I've made a turn in anything from Pentecostal and Charismatic and lately Anglican, so okay. <laughs> I represent about everything that there is to represent. <laughs> so, so, you, so you went in search of, 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 of a fit for you personally? Yeah, I think, um, I think the kind of mindset that we grew up with, and that's that's still very prevalent today, is a very uh, modernist kind of way of thinking. There's right and wrong. Okay. There's very little in between the right and wrong. There's very little gray. Yes. Everything is academic, and if it's academic, then you can prove this is the right way. So if you if you come with that kind of a worldview, and you have some sort of a spiritual awakening. As much as you're going to tell yourself uh, that this is the truth of this book, you bring your own set of glasses and filters with you, yes. and it's a it's a kind of a dangerous thing because you don't realize how much of you is is in what you think is in the book. <laughs> so if you if you come with that kind of I'll be all right if I do the right thing, and you come with that into a spiritual environment, and you're constantly looking for what is the truth, what is the thing that is 100% correct and you lose out on all the nuances in the book Yes. Um, and, and you take stories that over time before they were written down in the book have been, they turn into myths, they mean something bigger than themselves but then you interpret that as if it, this is 100% you know, God speaking in a loud, booming voice, and this is exactly how it must be. Yeah. Um, but you, you fall in a trap eventually because you, you miss out on the nuances, because you start to expect things from um, your faith or your spirituality or your religion or your church that just cannot be delivered. Um, and then, f in my case, uh, I came to a point where I had to face those disparities. Um, and it was, and I think... S to some degree still is 
uh, a difficult part of my journey because um, you sit with a grey. Yeah. And you have to find ways to, to live with it. And we're not taught to live in the grey. And we're not taught to live in the grey. <laughs> yeah, that, that was never, never an okay area for us to be in. Yeah, and uh, honestly, uh, it's we're a product of our times, you know, because that's uh, apartheid thinking. Yeah. You're white or you're black. Yes. <laughs> and if you're grey, they call you coloured and then you fall in the cracks and it's almost yeah. worse than being white or black because you don't fit the box. Yeah. And if you're on the wrong side, then you must be banished and put in a homeland somewhere so that we can control the black. Yeah. Um, we're not taught to engage with difference. Uh, we're not told to um, celebrate difference. Absolutely. Um, and even today, I mean, we've come a long way, um, but still, the embracing of difference is very much on our own terms still. To, to just venture out into the other, into the space that is different from us. It's not something we easily do. We want to be in control of the process. Um, yeah, we want to be accompanied. We, uh, it's a it's a challenging process. What did you study? You said you went to Boston. Huh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that so sounds interesting. <laughs> in my days, they call it a BR Blomerangskakken. Oh, I did the same. <laughs> so I. I what, what what were your majors? <laughs> my majors were science of literature and languages. Oh, well, which I then followed up with honours in journalism. Good grief. And then which I followed up about 15 years later with a master's in applied theology. Good grief. <laughs> so <laughs> I started as a journalist in Johannesburg and I've worked for non-profits and I've worked for Christian prayer organizations. Then I moved to community development and then for the last 10 years it's been just me. <laughs> <laughs> and you spoke earlier about a spiritual a spiritual awakening. Was there something in your life that that awoke you, that, that made you start questioning stuff as they as they were? Something specific or was it a, a, a gradual process? I think I'm a very slow learner. <laughs> and thankfully you confessed the same problem. Yes, I did earlier, yes. <laughs> After, in the last few years of school and the first year after school, we went through a range of family tragedies. There were two phases in my life of family tragedies. And uh, an uncle died in a car crash and something else happened and something else happened. And um, there was kind of a, a crisis of faith. Um, and I had what I would have described at that stage as a kind of a, a reborn, born again kind of experience where okay. Um, you, f you face your, your own dark side and you ask forgiveness and um, accept grace and, and all of that. Um, that, was, that was a start for me because um, that got my behind in, in a church pew and I was very zealous and very religious for a very long time uh, and that sort of guided my journey for the next about 10 10, 15 years. Okay. After those 15 years, there was kind of a, a second butt kick. Because <laughs> the, the assumption... <laughs> yeah, I was I was the guy that would not just be involved in the, the mass crusades or the million people prayer meetings. I would be the guy that would want to help organize that. Okay. 
because th that's the thinking. If we if we can just do that, if we can advertise enough, if we can have enough people saying the same prayer at the same time, then grace will flood the earth. Um, now it may sound like I'm making jokes about that or disparaging it. I'm not. I'm, I understand the thinking behind it because I, I was there. Yeah. Um, but I, th I think there's more. And for me, I won't go into the details of why, but there was a range of uh, personal circumstances where I had to decide, you know, am I going to keep on trying to, to do more of the right thing to kind of twist the divine arm? <laughs> or, or is there something else? Uh, is there something more to embrace? Um, okay. And that was a process that unfolded over a number of years. Okay. To, to try and better understand how much of what I believe is a product of my time. How much of it is modernism playing out. Yes. Modernism that wants to control and put things into little boxes and, and be able to label everything and understand everything. So slowly and surely over time, I'm, I'm finding what I hope is a, is a broader understanding of faith. So I would still describe myself as, as a Christian, but I think there's more to life than trying to just tick the right boxes. I think the incarnation of Christ means more than, than that. Um, and obviously many people will have many questions and that's fine. But it's it's definitely a journey that's still unfolding for me. You made me think of two things now. The one is a funny story where when you said if you could get X amount of people to say this, the same prayer at the same time, at some stage, I must have been in, in varsity where they had this um, prayer day for women. I don't know if you can recall those days. So it was a prayer day for women across the world. And my elder sister called home and she asked me, where's mom? And I said to her, mom is at the prayer day for women in Triumph. I meant in Triumph congregation, because that's where I grew up. And she said, so why are the women praying for the women in Triumph? <laughs> and the other thing, I have now forgotten. Damn it, what was it? Hopefully it comes back to me. But right now it has pop, popped out of my head. So, how did you move from I don't know what was the biggest jump. <laughs> Journalism to master's degree in theology and then end up in pottery. <laughs> Did you do... Uh, okay, let, let, let's do the jump. Let's start with how did you end up with pottery? So I presume you are a potter. Or not? Not actually. Oh, oh well, okay. I, so I reached a, a stage in my life and I was older than 30 and um, had never done pottery before and started going to lessons and just doing it in my spare time. Okay, so, so you, 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 do, you have done pottery. You do pottery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Cool. Well, <laughs> I would like to do pottery now. I'm so busy with the business. You're, you're, you're now an admin clerk. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think that's exactly the point. Um, if I must describe myself today, it would... Um, I would describe myself as a, a kind of a multi-skill, I'm the Swiss Army knife. <laughs> you just keep on unfolding yeah, another tool, not, another tool, not another tool. I'm not a specialist blade, <laughs> so if you want me to use my theology degree to 
pastor a flock, I would be a disaster. <laughs> if you expect me to stay a journalist for the rest of my life, I will be the guy in the office that everybody end up hating. Because um, I know a little bit about many things, which means in a kind of community development setting, people like me are the, the mavericks that ask, ask questions, sometimes the right questions, sometimes the wrong ones, but we, we question nonetheless. And you make yourself unpopular in the process? Uh, well, <laughs> Invariably. I, I don't know. Nobody, no, nobody has said anything to my face. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, but I think, I think that's what we missed out on in the 80s. Because the molds were so firmly set. And what we need now more than ever with technology going where it is, with wealth gaps and race gaps and all of this, we, we need people that, that can see a, a bigger picture beyond the narrow focus of any particular discipline. We need to be able to step back and say, a community like Mikasa, where's the opportunities? Um, where's the gray areas that can give us new results if we engage with it differently? How can we, we take the opposite and sit in the middle of them and hold them and hold that tension, but hold the tension in a way that, um, that can lead to, to new outcomes? Yeah, so hopefully someday there will be a term for a person like me. Fabulous. Do you why Macassar? It happened by accident. A friend of mine had his music studio here for a while and he got funding to start a, a pottery studio. I was between jobs and he asked me to pop in and I popped in and then I popped in twice a week and <laughs> I'm, I'm still popping. <laughs> but over time I used to think that we, we need to get things exactly right. I need to find out from God what is my one divine calling and do that one thing. Um, but I've learned that that sense of calling is not so much what you need to do, it's, it's, a, it's who you are. But that's also problematic because people understand it in a particular way. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how much of that I must explain without getting too technical and hard <laughs> to follow. Um, sometimes you need to take stock of where you are at. Absolutely. With a bit of assumption, maybe this is where God wanted me in the first place. Why, why was I born in South Africa in the 80s? You know, not in some... I was born in the 60s, I wasn't a hippie, I, w I have particular parents and grandparents and brothers and sisters. Um, so this is w the cards that I got dealt with yeah. and I need to respond to that um, in a helpful way. And not make too many assumptions but that's what I was dealt with and I need to do something with that. Um, and I said earlier that I'm a slow learner. I was in a, a fairly progressive school. There were people of color in my school even in the late 80s. But the, the hard, harsh, practical realities of life for people of color in South Africa, if you asked me in 1989, I would say, no, I understand it. But looking back, I didn't. Yeah. Um, and there's things that I should have understood even five years ago that's only dawning on me now. I've learned to, to shut up a bit more, not to have too many opinions and have almost no opinions on social media <laughs> because things get, oh, I wish I could learn that. <laughs> thing, things get misconstrued so easily um, but I've learned to, l to try and listen more um, and understand w where people come from um, 
Okay, so to be practical, I had started helping at the pottery studio in Makassar, but by that time I had uh, an understanding that if we're going to help young people in marginalized communities, there's a couple of things we need to get right. The most basic thing is we need to be there for a really long time. If things don't work out, we can't walk away. Um, because people have been walking away from communities like this mm. for forever. Um, it needs to be a long-term engagement. It needs to be a long-term friendship-based engagement. Because within a friendship, we can undermine the historical power relationships. I do come in with a lot of perceived and real power in a community like this. I'm, the fact that I'm white gives me privilege. The fact that financially I'm more secure gives me privilege. Um, people perceive me because of that and I perceive people through those lenses so unless we can learn to undermine that we can never really be friends we have to find ways to, to navigate those power hierarchies so it needs to be long term it needs to be friendship based and if we can help young people it needs to have immediate economic outcomes Okay. so if I teach somebody I can't send them home and say oh you know I hope this resounds because there's very familiar stories like this in the good in the good book. If if I teach somebody to make a CV and then say, "Oh, good luck, go home. I hope you give your CV to millions of companies and then get wonderful jobs," and I leave it at that, I've really not helped them. All all I've done is I built resentment in in a training process. Absolutely. Because there's no outcome. Yes. Um, and very early in the process of the pottery, we realized that and tried to navigate doing that. Um, the downside was we, d we didn't start f under the umbrella of any organization. So it had to be self-funded from the outset, which complicates things because you can't employ somebody to do what needs to get done. You either do it yourself or, or it doesn't get done. Yeah. Um, so I think realistically we, we could have been further down the line than we are now you know, with some additional support. But be that as it may, it was an important learning curve but then as I started just thinking through lots of these issues that I've mentioned already now and then you start looking at Macassar through different eyes and you realize but between Macassar and Strand I mean if you use the highway they're just like three kilometers apart but those three kilometers are occupied by a bomb factory that recently had a very big explosion so think through the, the metaphorical value of that um, people don't realize it but that's the reality and if you drive the other way, then Makassar is separated from Africa's best residential development by a four-lane highway. So if people in Makassar want to work in that luxury development, they need to take a 20 rand taxi to Somerset West, a 30 rand taxi there. So it's already 50 rand a day to literally yeah. reach a place that is about 300 meters from your house. Um, on the other side, Makassar is separated from Kailicha with a sand mine. It's cut off from the sea by a nature reserve, which could be an asset, but it's not at the moment. Um, and there's a, a slow awakening to, to what does this mean. In the 1980s, uh, as today, back then, the, the bomb factory, or the PC term, munitions facility, <laughs> is still a big employer. But what does it do to your psyche when you know you're manufacturing ammunition that feeds into a national police machine that shoots 
your kids when they protest in the streets? Yeah. What does that do to the psyche of a people? Um, so over time you wake up to some of these, these realities and you, you think about poverty differently because it's now your friends that live here. And uh, you engage differently. And um, for me, Makassar is one of the most iconic places in South Africa because it's so, in, in both the good and the bad way, so perfectly typifies where we are as a nation that there's this this beautiful community with amazing natural and social assets that can so easily be monetized to to uplift the community but because it's on the wrong side of the bomb factory those with the ability to activate these solutions drive by and don't realize it exists absolutely um, I was one of those for as I said to you I've never been here and you took me for a drive through and it's beautiful. There's some amazing, amazing stuff here. Johan, do you sleep well at night or do you constantly think about this stuff? How you can make a change and how you can make a difference? And uh, <laughs> I think I tend to overcompensate. Um, the one thing my parents did very well is they raised me with a sense of moral responsibility. You know, there's right and wrong. And one of the ways that plays out is we, we need to take ownership for where our nation is at. Um, now, the, the, the black hole is, it's, it doesn't really help anybody to, to fall into a pit of despair of guilt and who's guilty and who's not, who Absolutely. benefited, who's privileged and who's not. Yeah. Um, instead, we can reframe that and say, but we have this unique opportunity to redeem. Well, I saw a poster like that in your office. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, every time I reach out and in the most positive sense I can muster but build a relationship with somebody that's different from me that lives in a place that I'm not used to, I have an opportunity to be a source of redemption. And it's not always easy because there's harsh realities of crime, of poverty and all of this. But we have to find the humanity in all of that. Um, and then learn to go to sleep at night and sleep well because tomorrow we face the same demon. Yeah. But I, I've done what I could today. Absolutely. It, that was a, a big learning process for me. Is um, I was a, on a uh, incubating process with the, the Spark Change Makers, and um, it was a very helpful process. I don't think they intend for it to be. Um, what I made of it, but it was helpful to me to, to learn um, when is something good enough. It's not perfect, absolutely. But that is what I could muster within mm. my emotional and mental capacities yeah. today. And if I need to apologize tomorrow, I will. But this is good enough for now. Good enough is such an important phrase to get to know and to embrace. Um, the poverty is overwhelming. Um, they are dangerous places, but we, we need to learn to, to push ourselves just that little bit more than we did yesterday yeah. and, and find a new friend somewhere and do what we can. Fantastic. Quick question. Who is in charge of the creative process at Makasa Pottery? Because I walked through before we did the interview and I saw some really, really interesting stuff. Uh, Makasa Pottery is the vehicle at the moment. The, the dream is over the next few years to, to broaden the scope. In other words, the, 
the ecosystem approach and the, the unseen drivers that result in the success of a Macassar pottery to, to leverage that same process for, for other business units but also for other processes that I've sort of create, coined the phrase unfence South Africa. We need to unfence our thinking um, and learn to jump over the fences. So part of it is a community-based business incubation process. Um, so that we can build products and services as assets in a, in a community. But part of it is building pathways for people on the other side of the fence. Um, if you were to come to me and say, oh, I've discovered Macassar now, how can I engage? We need to build pathways for people to engage with that. Um, so Macassar Pottery, in, in a sense, is kind of the, the spearhead of that process. Within the ecosystem in the community, we have resident artists, so some of the work that you saw there was theirs. Okay. Um, but so they come in and use the studio as as, yeah. as, um, as a resource at their disposal to create? Yes, so they, they rent space from us at the okay. moment, but over time there will be new resident artists that can occupy that place because they, they started the journey from scratch with us at the bottom. Okay, cool. Uh, sort of as the last end of a, an incubation process but then um, with our new uh, partners also there's a, a whole new capacity that's developing we have uh, designers on board and so on that will help us design specific ranges for specific retailers nice and help us grow our capacity cool so that sounds exciting so when when that can we expect the big announcement <laughs> well, am I putting pressure on you? <laughs> no, um, it's a, a process that is still unfolding. Um, we recently moved to new premises so we can <coughs> receive larger tourist groups. Um, and we have new kilns so we can have a, a larger production capacity. Um, the next few months will uh, hopefully... So it's already happening? Basically. It's already happening. Okay. Uh, the big announcement will probably come when we are able to say, okay, the systems are working, it's A for away. Uh, we can up our production to five, six thousand units a month. Excellent. Yeah. And that will make a huge difference to to what you're doing now. So are we looking at employing a lot more people? Because okay, what I'm struggling to understand about Macassar Pottery is in my head I see a pottery studio. Yes. But I get the feeling there's a lot more than a pottery studio. Exactly. <laughs> That's why I say it, it's the spearhead. Yes. Because even even a ceramic factory that, you know, puts out 20,000 items a month can only employ so many people at a time. One part of the strategy then is to set it up in such a way as a social enterprise that the, the company can pay for the, the skilling process of people within the factory by itself. So we don't, we're not funding dependent. But, but use the factory environment to create pathways for people to grow. I would hate if in 10 years time the person that does slip casting today is still doing slip casting. Yeah. Uh, because our brains were designed to do more than that. Uh, we were not born to flip pancakes for 40 years and then retire. <laughs> we have to build pathways for people to grow and become owners and be able to you know, initiate their own entrepreneurial ventures if they, if they so desire. Um, but as I as I said now, the the, the larger goal um, is not just community empowering empowerment or community transformation in the narrow sense. 
as much as Macassar needs to be economically viable and sustainable and self-sustaining, it sits within Cape Town. And it's to everybody's benefit that marginalized communities be developed. Yeah. Um, so there definitely is a bigger picture within the community of how, how do I take hands with other organizations in the community. It's again what I said earlier about the, the black and the white. How do I find the gray areas? How do I operate in the shadows, build unlikely friendships and relationships with other organizations? How do I learn to collaborate and not try and do everything myself? Yeah. Um, so that as as the the pottery grows, it can employ that, uh, you know, 20, 30, 50 odd people. Yes. But if we leverage the platform that we've built for the community through our collaborations, we can be so much more. Yes. Maybe we won't employ the 500 people, but if our collaborations can get 500 people employed, then why not? Absolutely. And then if we have tourist offerings and team building offerings, and we can help people from outside this community come here and, and discover value, then we're addressing a, a larger social cohesion issue. Yeah. But it's not because we were preaching on Facebook. It's because we put a, a strong tourism product or a team building product on the yeah. table. So, so there's an economic engagement. Cool. And the, the nice thing about economics, on the one hand, we do have a wealth gap. But the flip side of that, the opportunity is if I can put viable products on the table, um, no matter how wealthy you are, if you come for my tourist experience, I'm the one in charge because I'm offering a product to you. Yes. Um, so as much as we have the wealth gap, if we can empower people with new products and services, it's, it's a very easy way to, to invert the, the social hierarchies because I become a service provider, yeah. I become a business owner, um, it, it gives me dignity, I can self-sustain. Absolutely. Um, and I, I'm then the one that introduces you, not the other way around. Okay. And it's no. not handout based. So the, the premises we, we met earlier, yes. is that the new? Last year we occupied about 90 square meters and oh, we, did, we did an order for Woolworths of 7,500 items from those 90 square meters Ew. and we delivered. <laughs> well done. <laughs> but in the process the uh, realized, please never again. <laughs> so we needed uh, more space and um, yeah, fortunately the, the landlord allowed us in. Awesome. Yeah, so we have a much larger space now. and. Um, especially in terms of tourism, we have a dedicated space um, that can receive up to about 40 people at a time. Cool. Fantastic. Johan, this was very, very interesting and very insightful. Um, and I really appreciate, what are those, these, are these kind of explosions around us? Uh, exactly. The w <laughs> we're next to a bomb factory, remember? <laughs> uh, so at times during the day they sound an alarm to alert you that they are going to test an explosive oh device word. and then you hear the explosion. Uh. <laughs> Never a dull moment. <laughs> but John, thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. And um, I wish you and Macassar Pottery everything of the best. Thank you so much. Driving out after having done the recording, I felt quite embarrassed. I find it difficult to believe that I could be living such an insure life. I mean, I've never heard of Sheikh Yusuf, and little did I know that such an important figure was buried so close to where I live. I've been looking into his life a bit more. You can too if you want to. There is a Wikipedia page for him, which is https colon forward slash forward slash en 
www.wikipedia.org forward slash wiki forward slash shake which is S-H-E-I-K-H space Yusuf Y-U-S-U-F The first line on the page reads Abadin Tadia Chusup 1626-23 to 23 May 1699 more commonly known as Sheikh Yusuf or Sheikh Joseph was an Indonesian Muslim of noble descent he was also known as Muhammad Yusuf al-Magasari in 1693, he was exiled to the Cape of Good Hope, South Africa, which resulted in his establishing Islam in the Cape. There's also a page for him on the South African History website, which you can find at www.sahistory.org, and then just Google Sheikh Yusuf from there on. I have huge respect for Johan and his journey. I was taught in recovery that we can only keep what we have by giving it away. It looks as sounds as if Johan has definitely reached Maslow's sixth level of needs, which is his intrinsic needs level. That level is about stepping out of self and helping others, and that's definitely what Johan is doing. If you want to help in any way, please visit the Makasa Pottery website, or search for them on Facebook, or even better, book a tour and go experience the wonderful work being done in Makasa. If you want to know more about what I do, please feel free to make contact with me on my website, which is www.freddy.org.za, or find me on Facebook at either Meet Me in the Field or Freddy Counselor or Freddy van Rensburg, or on Twitter at at RensburgFreddy, or Instagram at Freddy Counselor. Remember that Freddy is always spelt with an IE at the end. I want to thank Juan for his time and lovely energy. Thank you for your listening. Be safe. Bye.